Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. The Synod on Synodology entered its second week with a new theme for the participants to discuss, a common communion that radiates. In a modern world that tends towards both homogenizing things and fracturing things, communion is a language of beauty, of harmony, of unity and plurality. The Synod on Synodality is about halfway through. Jerry and I will give you the latest on what we've learned about what's going on. Pope Francis is calling for Hamas to release all hostages they took from Israel. This is the strongest comment the head of the Vatican Church has made since a full-scale war erupted in the region five days ago. He also said that Israel's siege on Gaza is concerning. Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Parolin lamented the tragic situation in southern Israel. War is always the defeat of dignity. And Pope Francis is following the conflict between Israel and Hamas. We'll talk about his appeals for peace and humanitarian corridors, and the Pope's concern that one of his friends may have been among the victims. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good afternoon from across the table, Jerry. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to Rome, Colleen. It's been four years since we've sat and done a podcast face to face. Wild. We've we've done so much coverage since then. It's it's crazy. All right, Jerry, let's bring our listeners into Rome with us and just give them a sense of what the energy is like here, what it's been like. To me, it feels like Honestly, the energy of the Senate is flagging a little bit. Every participant I've talked to, even the journalists I've talked to, are feeling a little worn out from, one, the long hours, and then two, on the part of the journalists, from the secrecy. It's been really difficult to get to get quotes, to get any information on the record about what's going on. Do you feel the same way? Well, it's a heavy lift, I think, for all the participants, mm -hmm. because the hours are long. By the time many of them get home to have lunch and then get back to the Synod, they have two and a half hours. Some people who are not from Rome, I mean, they didn't know really where to stay, and so they're staying quite far away. They have long commutes, and I think they're getting out at like 7.30 p.m., which it's a long time, and then you eat dinner, and then you're going to sleep. Some of them are, in fact, suggesting that they should have a, a Synod where all the participants would live in the same place, like Sacrofano, where they had the retreat. And maybe that will happen, because I, I think some of them feel that there's a lot to be gained from being together, sitting around also relaxing together. The other thing is, there is a real joy among the participants about how the Synod is going. I remember I, I talked to one Archbishop a few days ago, who had been quite negative some time back about the Synod. And he said to me, well, 
I really am enjoying this. I think it's going very well. Everybody now recognizes the wisdom of the Pope to have two sessions, one this October and one October 2024, because at the end of this session, which closes on the 29th of October, we will need to have identified what issues really need to be some focus, theological focus, maybe canon law focus, maybe discussion in the local church focus, but they will need to deepen the issues that they have identified. Yeah, one other way in which people are really kind of coming around to the way the Pope was seeing things is in terms of this synod secrecy. I mean, obviously, we journalists are rather frustrated by it, but the participants have really been keeping to the kind of confidentiality uh, directions around their own interventions and the interventions of others. Even the people who are giving interviews are not revealing what's discussed in those confidential sessions. One thing that we should also mention on the secrecy front is that there was an issue that came up last week where some of the synod documents were uploaded to an unsecured server. The impression I got is that it was unsecured to make it easier for some of the synod members to access. Anyway, some of those got into the hands of some journalists. The Vatican has now imposed a password and username system on top of those. So those are no longer public, but a Vatican spokesman said that no confidential documents were actually leaked. And to wrap that up, I actually ran into Cardinal Grex this morning in St. Peter's Square, and he told me, and I've heard this echoed by by other synod organizers, that uh, he's really impressed with the fact that people have really bought into this this confidentiality, this privacy. All the synods I've covered, maybe 20 of them, I've never seen such a level of confidentiality. And it's really a measure of the respect that they have for each other. I think the retreat at the beginning helped this enormously, and also the Pope's intervention. So let's talk about what we have been able to find out about what's been discussed in the Synod Hall. We'll just go through each section of the discussion. So the first third of this module, so they had module A, that was about synodality. It was kind of meant to get people on the same page, learn how to do these discussions. Module B is the one that deals with these three central themes of communion, mission, and participation. So that's what we're in right now. They've finished the communion part. Now they're on to mission. So let's talk about communion. We know that the theme of this was a communion that radiates. And the question that they were addressing is, how can we be more fully assign an instrument of union with God and the unity of all humanity? This is a question that includes a lot of different things. It's included a discussion of the LGBT issue, how LGBT people should be included in the church, what that looks like, the question of how polygamous people are meant to be included in the church, questions of the environment, of ecumenism, our communion with other churches. Jerry, what do we know about what's been discussed in this section? Well, I, I think the key question is inclusion. It's an inclusive church, not one that excludes. I think uh, rather than the single issues, that that's the overall theme. And then the question is, uh, the big issues for many people was the question of the poor. How do you include the poor? That's right. Now, we know that there have been some rather emotional moments. We've heard that off record from a number of people, enough people that I feel comfortable saying it as fact, um, that there have been emotional moments in these discussions about inclusion and, and what that looks like. Um, I also appreciated that you mentioned the poor because you know, we know that was discussed, but it hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the press. A lot of the press is focused, especially on the LGBT question, which we know that that was discussed in the context of this question of truth versus love. And that 
was an interesting question because it kind of introduced this this polarity between truth and love that made for a dynamic discussion rather than some of the other questions are about concrete practices and they tend to you know be a little less of exploring attention and more of a um okay here are my recommendations going down a list well colleen it's an interesting analysis you're making because if you think back to the 1980s when the liberation theology was really at its strongest in a way, the tension then was over how you include the poor in the society, in the church. And that was the question that produced the tensions, because some said you're going down a Marxist road. Sometimes they accused the famous um, Archbishop of uh, Brazil, Recife, Dom Helder Camara, of being the red archbishop. And he never got a red hat from Rome because of this uh, characterization of a man who's now on the way to sainthood. And so the tensions arise, I think this is a good thing. And I'm very happy that in each of the groups, when they sum up at the end, they have four points. They say, first of all, convergences, where do we agree? So they list those. Divergences, where do we disagree? What are the tensions that have emerged in your group? And what are the questions that have emerged? And so each group is sending back a report with those four points. It gets beyond polarization. You are respecting what is being said, all of it, not just moving to one side against another. And I think many of the participants, from what I've heard, they like this. They recognize, of course, there's a problem because you've got 35 groups and each of them sending in a report with convergences, divergences, tensions, and questions. It's a difficult to package it all into a synthesis document at the end. Yeah. Now, we should say one thing that makes that a little simpler is that not every group is considering every question. So under each of these questions, like under this question of how can we be a, a sign of communion, there are maybe five sub-questions not every one of the 35 groups is discussing all five questions. Each of those 35 groups gets assigned one question. So you have, say, seven groups all talking about the same question for about a week. And still in this question of communion, there was the whole question of migration, migrants, and what it means for the church and the, the relation of the countries that they come from, the church which they have left, and the new church which they're going into. And of course, th th these are, in some situations, great missionaries, as we see with the Filipinos who are all over. I've seen them in many countries. I saw them in Canada. I saw them in I Iraq. They're everywhere. And they are real missionaries in a way. They come with a faith and they may have little and they won't be able to go home maybe for seven years, 10 years, but they really bring the faith with them in a way like the you know, Peter and, well, especially the Apostle Paul, these are the modern Pauls of, of, of our church. Mm -hmm. And so th th there was a discussion on that, and I think a great appreciation, but also a realization that this is one of the big signs of the times of the 21st century, the movement of peoples. Mm -hmm. And we see it now in Gaza, right. the movement of people. And speaking of 
Peter and Paul, and also, as you did earlier, about liberation theology. We have a really interesting discussion on a bonus episode of Jesuitical, uh, which is our other podcast that America has here covering the Synod. That episode is available uh, on Jesuitical's Patreon page, but in it, we discuss how when the Synod participants went on their pilgrimage to the catacombs of St. Sebastian, they saw the place where Peter and Paul's remains were hidden for three years uh, during the persecution of the Christians in Rome, and then how the synod participants were also given a copy of the Vatican II-era Pact of the Catacombs, which was this important agreement that was signed in the catacombs by 40 bishops at Vatican II vowing to be a, a poorer church to live more humbly and more simply. Let's continue on to the next module, which is about mission. It's called co-responsibility and mission. And the key question here is how can we better share gifts and tasks in the service of the gospel? So naturally, this conversation, and we've heard this in the press briefings, has focused a lot on the role of women in the mission of the church. They started on this section last week, and right away, Cardinal Hollerich, who is the Relator General of the Synod, basically someone who kind of frames the discussion, he said in his opening speech, most of us here are men. I have never read anywhere that the baptism of women is inferior to the baptism of men. How can we ensure that women feel they are an integral part of this missionary church? And as one of the Synod organizers said to me this morning in St. Peter's Square, he said, this is, this is where this gets interesting. Well, I, I think Cardinal Holleridge has a real gift for zoning in on on the question, but doing it in a humorous way, <laughs> which offends nobody. I think he reaches the hearts of his audience, because I've heard many people say, well, this one spoke this way, but they all are praising Holleridge for his presentations, his brief introductions to each of the key themes. Mm -hmm. And he's not trying to anticipate answers. He's just going to lay it out and says, this is your task for the next two, three days. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of what concrete proposals they've been talking about. You know, this is not a synod that's geared towards making a lot of concrete proposals, but we do know from a press conference on Saturday, which would have been the 14th, that one of the participants said they haven't been discussing the female priesthood, but they have been discussing the female diaconate. So that gives us at least a little hint of where the, the women's ordination conversation fits into all of this. Also, one of our colleagues asked today at a press conference uh, how many women have been elected their group's rapporteur, that is the representative who brings their small group findings to the big group as a whole. And they said that, that a few of them have, which is, um, I think, a positive sign. It's interesting when you look out at the, the Synod Hall, you see that the tables are, are mostly men, usually with one or two women. And so it's good that they're giving them a voice. What came out very strongly from them and from the wider national discussions and local discussions was the, the, there must be a greater recognition of the ministry, the role that women can play in the church, and also opening up decisional spots. And this, I think, has come up, and it, it's obviously a theme on which there is, I would say, really substantial agreement. Yeah. The, the question is, specifically, what will this mean? That will be uh, part of the discussion in the next module that the participants will address. All right, Jerry, you and I are going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk about the escalating violence in the Holy Land and what Pope Francis has said thus far. Stay with us.
We're here in Rome covering the Synod on Synodality, which will have huge implications for the church around the world. And so it seems appropriate to tell you about an upcoming conference at the University of San Diego that will explore what it means to be a Catholic college or university today. The conference is called Lighting the Way Forward, and it will look at topics like climate change, structural racism, polarization, and the lack of trust in institutions. They're asking very honest questions that have wide-ranging impacts, just like the Synod is doing. This conference will take place from January 11th through 13th, 2024, and the speaker lineup includes Cardinal Robert McElroy, who's a frequent writer in America and a participant in the Synod, Vincentian Father Dennis Holtschreiter, who is the president of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and our friend and colleague Gloria Purvis, host of the Gloria Purvis podcast. For the full lineup and to register for the Lighting the Way conference, visit their website at sandiego.edu slash lighting. That's sandiego.edu slash L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. What you're hearing now is audio of Pope Francis making a phone call to some Christians in Gaza, assuring him that he's praying for them. He's talking to two nuns and a priest. I posted the video on my Instagram if you'd like to see more. But we know that since this violence began escalating between Hamas and Israel, uh, Pope Francis has been watching the situation really closely, even during the Synod. He's been chatting with people on both sides. Now, Jerry, your wife, Elisabetta, is a war correspondent. She's there right now. Um, just really quick, do you have any updates on her? Today, she's on the border with Lebanon, the northern border of Israel. And uh, that's a zone where Israelis, by order of the government, are being moved from 30 towns it's a lot of communities being moved because they're afraid that Hezbollah might send rockets in and these people could get injured. Mm-hmm. And then yesterday when she was down the south, she could see she was only a few kilometers from Gaza and she could see columns of smoke rising up from the missiles being sent in and the bombs being dropped by the Israeli Air Force, and also they've been shelling it. And for seven days, nonstop, that small enclave, 141 square miles, has been subject to bombing. More than 6,000 bombs have been dropped, according to the Israeli Defense Force. Now, we know that Pope Francis has been speaking to people in Gaza. We have that video of him calling those two nuns and the priest. We also know that he's been speaking to a parish priest there regularly. You reported a story yesterday about how Pope Francis was on the phone with an Israeli journalist who reported that the Pope may have had a friend who was a victim of one of the Hamas attacks, although it wasn't clear whether he thought this person might be a casualty, an injury, taken hostage. What do we know about that? Well, he phoned uh, this Israeli journalist whom he has known since before he went to the Holy Land in 2014. And so they got to know then. And since then, they have kept in contact. He phoned him for some reason. And the journalist actually filmed and recorded the conversation. Mm -hmm. He put on the loudspeaker. 
and he made it available. And the Pope said in it, you know, that he was close to him and to the Israeli people for the massacres that had happened. And uh, he said, this takes us back 50 years, this whole conflict. Now, the reason that you mentioned that this journalist was being recorded and made that available is because it's come out that it wasn't clear to the Pope that he was being recorded, although the journalist said he had the Pope's permission to publish what he said. Yes, but first of all, I should say that the the journalist said to to the Pope, Henrik Seibermann is is his name, he said to the Pope, there are many Israelis uh, been victims. And he said, the Pope says, yes, yes, I know. Uh, And... Maybe, perhaps, one of my friends could have been in it, one. And so the journalist, then when he published the thing, he gave the impression that this one could have been a hostage. Right. He speculated about who it may have been. Yeah. And there was no evidence from the Pope that it was a hostage. The Pope didn't say, in fact, that those killed was his friend, the injured, or the hostages. I don't think it's it's clear. So... Pope Francis made an appeal on Sunday for the release of hostages, and he also called for humanitarian corridors to be made in Gaza to provide food, to help refugees get out, Uh, and he urged people to pray for peace in the Middle East. Meanwhile, Cardinal Perelin, the Vatican Secretary of State, visited the Israeli embassy to the Holy See. Jerry, this is really interesting because the Vatican is walking a delicate diplomatic line here. Both sides want the Vatican to support their narrative. This is the information more that uh, the the Israelis obviously want the Pope to come out and condemn Hamas and the Vatican to condemn Hamas, but they don't want him to be talking about uh, what's happening in Gaza. Also, the Vatican is well aware that the crime against humanity, which was the killing of more than 1,400 Israelis on October the 7th, that's a crime against humanity. And they're very clear on it. Each side wants you to come down on their side so that you justify their part of the narrative. And the Vatican will almost never do that unless there's some really crystal clear case. But in this case, when you have the the killings of civilians on both sides, there's just no way that the Vatican is going to come down on one side. The Vatican has always insisted on two-state solution. It's insisted on the special status for the holy city, which is holy for three religions, not one. Right. That special status means that people of the three Abrahamic religions can access the holy sites. And just to wrap up this discussion of this very complicated conflict, uh, Pope Francis has called for a day of prayer, fasting, and abstinence from meat on October 17th, which is the day that our listeners will be hearing this. So in case you haven't heard this at the beginning of the day, maybe you've had a few meals, uh, perhaps you can can join in that uh, in another way or for the rest of the day. One more story we didn't have time to talk about today is that on Sunday the 15th, Pope Francis issued a new apostolic exhortation about St. Therese of Lisieux, who has long been one of his favorite saints. We have a story uh, by Cindy Wooden of Catholic News Service up on our website, and I will link to that in our show notes. Jerry, thanks so much. It's great to be here with you in Rome. I wish that we were discussing lighter topics on this show, but I'm glad to be here and get to talk about them with you. Well, I'm delighted you're here, Colleen, and also our other colleagues from America. We've got a big team. 
Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo da Silva and Sebastian Gomes. Production assistance from Delaney Coyne. Kevin Christopher Robles is our audio engineer. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at Colleen Dully, that's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E, and Jerry at Jerry O. Rome, that's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. We've both been posting a lot throughout the Synod, so follow us for live updates. And please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. Just click the link in our show notes. It's easy to do. It's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And for a limited time this month of the Synod, you can get a digital subscription for just $1. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher app. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.